Das sind 20 Minuten, die du nie zurückbekommst. And that concludes our foreign language lesson for the day. <laughs> that was once again Tony regaling us with his foreign language skills, this time in German. And I think, I'm pretty sure what he said is, this is 20 minutes you'll never get back. My name is Doug Prezak. Welcome to the show. If this is the first time tuning in, hi, hi everybody. How you doing? I hope you enjoy it. And if it is your first time tuning in, uh, I got good news for you. There's 56 other episodes. <laughs> 56 other episodes you can listen to. Let's see, 56 times uh, 20 minutes, okay, and divide that by 60. Okay, so that turns out to be 1,120 minutes or just a little over 18 hours. So if you have that much time, check them all out. <laughs> I'm sorry. Anyway, thanks again to Tony. I'd always appreciate it, Tony. Next week, trust me, that's a, a language. I probably should run a contest to see if they can tell me what language it is. Enough of all that. Uh, let's get the show going. Now, you all know how these shows start. I think of something that I think uh, I need to talk about, and there's the show. But sometimes I think of things in between. I say, oh, I'm going to file that away and keep it for maybe a future episode. And that's what's happened with this episode. This topic has been floating around in my head for some time. And frankly, I've been a little hesitant to move forward with it. Now, if you follow the show on the Instagram machine thing, you know what episode 57 is all about. And for those of you who don't follow the show, you know, why not? I don't post pictures of my cat holding a tiny ukulele or the latest recipe I just made. Nope, it's just a teaser for the episode and then when the show is up. So come on, world. Join in the fun. It's at 20MYNGB. That's all you have to do. All right, where was it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Today's topic. Well, it's about diamonds. Now, you're probably saying to yourself, hey, Doug, what's the big deal? Well, my friends, you know my executive producer, also known as my wife, She listens and checks every single episode before it ever gets published. She's caught a lot of my mistakes and occasionally has said, you know, you might want to rethink this. But here's what you don't know. She is also a GIA graduate gemologist. That means she knows her, uh, her stuff. And piling on top of that, she's also credentialed in diamond certification and diamond grading. Uh-oh. So we'll see if you're even listening to this episode after she does her quality check at the end of the show. <laughs> All right, let's get going. Now, for openers, the word diamond is originally derived from the Greek word adamas, which meant conquerable and indestructible. But, you know, let's not get ahead of ourselves. We'll start with this, and you probably already know this. Diamonds share some common characteristics with good old-fashioned coal. Both are composed of the most common substance on Earth, which is carbon. Now, what makes diamonds different from coal is the way that carbon atoms are arranged and how the carbon is formed. Diamonds are created when carbon is subjected to extremely high pressures and temperatures that's found at the Earth's lithosphere, which lies approximately 90 to 240 miles below the Earth's surface. It's forced up from this layer by nature or by man, then it's cleaved and cut and polished until it ends up in Zales or Tiffany or wherever. Before diamonds became an ancient form of currency or a modern symbol of love, they were surrounded by superstition, spirituality, magic, mystique, and divine belief. Plato believed that diamonds were the living beings that embodied celestial spirits. Okay. The Roman naturalist Pliny the Elder, and I love it when Pliny the Elder ends up in one of these podcasts, 
Anyway, he said that, quote, diamond is the most valuable, not only of the precious stones, but of all things in this world. I think my wife agrees with that one. In Hindu mythology, it's believed that someone wearing a diamond is protected from fire, poison, thieves, water snakes, and evil spirits. I guess regular snakes, you're on your own, but water snakes, you're safe. Romans believe that wearing a diamond into battle would make a warrior stronger and invincible, while others believe someone wounded or sick can be cured by the magical energy within each stone. It wasn't until the year 1074 when the Queen of Hungary had her crown decorated with diamonds that the stones were used as a form of jewelry. Over the next thousand years or so, diamonds began to make their mark on our history. Royal families and powerful leaders exchanged them to seal an alliance or express their loyalty to each other. The diamond industry boomed with mines popping up in new countries and continents around the world and eventually they became a symbol of love and commitment. In case you can't tell, I am not a fan of diamonds. You know, you can throw me a sapphire or an emerald or even a peridot, but keep your diamonds. I don't, I don't care. But the show is about diamonds, so I move on. The world's love of diamonds had its start in India, where diamonds were gathered from the country's rivers and streams. Some historians estimate that India was trading in diamonds as early as the 4th century B.C., In the early 13th century, the first famous diamond was the Kohinoor. Uh, that translates into Mountain of Light. It was discovered in the Golconda Mines of India. Weighing in at over 790 carats at the time, it was believed to have magical powers, and it became a legend that whoever owned the diamond ruled the world. Between the time of its initial discovery and today, it changed hands countless times, often during bloody, violent battles. See, nothing good comes from diamonds. Leading some to believe that it's actually cursed and brings bad luck to its owner. Now, it's currently part of the crown jewels of the United Kingdom, set in the Queen Mother's Crown and held inside the Tower of London. Indian diamonds found their way to Western Europe in the caravans that traveled to Venice's medieval markets. By the 1400s, Diamonds were becoming fashionable accessories for Europe's elite. Now, as the demand for diamonds increased and their function began to evolve, the supply of diamonds needed to grow as well. In the early 1500s, Vasco da Gama, you all remember him from our history lessons, right? Good old Vasco, he opened up the direct sea route to India and helped increase the quantity of diamonds being exported from India to Europe. In the early 1700s, India's diamond supply began to decline. Uh-oh. When the Indian diamond mines were depleted, the quest for alternate sources began. Now, although small deposits were found in Brazil in 1725, the supply was not enough to meet world demands. Sounds to me like it's time for a new continent. Well, the 1800s brought increasing affluence to Western Europe and the United States. Explorers unearthed the first great South African diamond deposits in the late 1800s, just as diamond demand broadened. Now, here's an interesting story about a little stone that eventually got classified a diamond. Let's turn the Wayback Machine to March 1867 in the Northern Cape of South Africa. There, young Erasmus Jacobs, he was just 15 years old, he amused himself by playing with clippies which we all know as stones, that he found on his family farm near Hopetown. 
Erasmus found a funny-looking stone. He showed it to his father, who in turn showed it to a neighbor farmer named Schalk van Nierkirk. Now, Schalk found the stone to be very intriguing, and he offered to buy it from the Jacobs family for a decent price. Don't ask me. I don't know. Research just says a decent price. Who knows? Soon afterward, Van Nierkirk entrusted the stone to a guy named John O'Reilly, who took it to Colesburg, South Africa, to inquire about its nature and value. The stone was, <laughs> this is unbelievable. The stone was then put in a plain paper envelope and sent by mail to a Dr. William Guybon Atherstone. And I think that's the best name you could ever have if you're a mineralogist, okay? Anyway, uh, it was sent to Dr. Atherstone, who was the colony's foremost mineralogist. Atherstone confirmed that it was, in fact, a 21.25-carat diamond. That diamond later became known as the Eureka Diamond. Just a few years later, two Dutch settlers named Johannes de Beer and his brother Diedrich de Beer, don't get ahead of me, they discovered diamonds on their farm. That discovery led to a diamond rush. People from various parts of South Africa intruded on their land in the hope of finding their own diamonds. It's not their land. Come on, people. Unable to protect their land from the masses of people invading it, they decided to sell their property. Now, although the brothers did not become owners of the diamond mines, their name, De Beers, was given to one of the mines. And today, the De Beers name is still synonymous with the diamond industry worldwide. In 1871, a colossal 83.5 carat deposit was unearthed on a shallow hill in Colesburg. These findings sparked a rush of thousands of diamond prospectors to the region and led to the opening of the first large-scale mining operation, which became known as the Kimberley Mine. In just a few years, South Africa yielded more diamonds than India had in over 2,000 years, with Kimberley at the time being responsible for producing 95% of the world's diamonds. Entrepreneur Cecil Rhodes established De Beers Consolidated Mines Limited 22 years later in 1888. By 1900, De Beers, through its mines in South Africa, controlled an estimated 90% of the world's production of rough diamonds. By the early 1900s, systematic measures began to fall into place to help buyers and sellers alike have uniform method of measuring the quality and the value of their diamonds. In 1931, Robert M. Shipley founded the Gemological Institute of America, also known as GIA. His mission was not only as a place for gemological study and research, but also as an educational facility where gem knowledge could be organized and shared with the public. In the late 40s and 50s, Shipley created and invented the four C's to help measure the quality of each gem, as well as international diamond grading system. Now, you all know the four C's, color, clarity, cut, and carat weight. Well, it's time for a break. And when we come back, I will be talking about the four C's, and I'm sure I will be fact-checked. But I want you to know the four C's, so when you go out and buy a diamond, you'll know what you're doing. And just a tip from me to you, don't try and pawn off a cubic zirconium as a diamond. You won't fool them. They always know. I'll be right back. What? I told you it was going to be a short break. <laughs> what do you want from me? All right, let's get back to it. 
Until the middle of the 20th century, there was no agreed-upon standard that would identify diamond's quality. GIA created the first globally accepted standard for describing diamonds using color, clarity, cut, and carat weight. Today, the four C's of diamond quality is the universal method for assessing the quality of any diamond anywhere in the world. So let's break down those four C's and we're going to start with color. The diamond color evaluation of diamonds is based on the absence of color. A chemically pure and structurally perfect diamond has no hue, no color whatsoever, so it has a higher value. Diamonds are categorized on a scale of D to Z. Now, the scale measures the degree of colorlessness, try saying that fast, by comparing the stone under controlled lighting and precise viewing conditions to a set of master stones of established color value. Many of these diamond color distinctions are so subtle they're invisible to the untrained eye. However, these distinctions make a very big difference when it comes to the diamond quality and definitely the price. Perfectly colorless diamonds at the D end of the spectrum are considered the highest quality and the most expensive. Colorless diamonds are more desirable as they allow the most refraction of light or what you might call sparkle. Brown or yellow hued diamonds at the Z end of the spectrum are deemed lowest quality. Brown diamonds with varying levels of intensity are the most common and they are in oversupply. Now, just try giving your significant other a diamond that's graded X through Z and see how well that works out for you. But wait, there's a happy ending for these otherwise crappy diamonds. The Le'Veon Jewelry Company, they trademarked the name Chocolate Diamonds in the year 2000. That gave a monopoly on the market for these particularly named brown diamonds. Soon after this rebranding, Chocolate Diamonds took off. Google searches for Chocolate Diamond went from virtually zero in 2007 to 400,000 in 2014. They've also been marketed as cognac or champagne diamonds to increase their appeal. Oh, brother. Okay, we get it. D is good, unless it's my algebra class in high school. Sorry, flashback. And Z is bad, uh, unless someone tells you it's a chocolate diamond. But why start at D? Who did A, B, and C piss off to get left off the scale? Well, before GIA universalized the D to Z color grading scale, there was no clear standard to define what a diamond color is. A variety of other systems were used loosely from A, B, and C without any clear definition to numbers like 1, 2, and 3 or Roman numerals to descriptive terms like gem blue or blue white all of which were notorious for misinterpretation. So the creators of GIA Color Scale wanted to start fresh without any association to the earlier systems. Thus, the GIA scale starts at the letter D. There you go. Okay, next up is clarity. Now, clarity measures the purity of the diamond and the absence, or actually more importantly, the presence of any tiny flaws. The clearer or more flaw-free the diamond, the more brilliant and valuable it becomes. Internal flaws are referred to as inclusions, while external ones are called blemishes. Jewelers and gemologists, they use a scale that has six categories. The first is flawless, or FL, and that means there's no inclusions and no blemishes visible under 10 times magnification. How many people walk around with that 10 times magnifier thing attached to their eyes, unless you're some sort of steampunk or something? 
Anyway, that's flawless, FL. Their next is internally flawless, IF. No inclusions, visible under 10 times magnification. Next is very, very slightly included, or VVS, one or two. Inclusions are so slight, they're difficult for a skilled grader to see under 10 times magnification. Next category is very slightly included, or VS, of course, one and two. Inclusions are observed with effort under 10 times magnification, but can be characterized as minor. And then there's slightly included, or SI, of course, one and two. Inclusions are noticeable under 10 times magnification. Next is included, I1, I2, and I3. Inclusions are obvious, come on people, under 10 times magnification, which may affect their transparency and brilliance. Many inclusions and blemishes are so tiny to be seen by anyone other than a trained diamond grader. To the naked eye, a VS1 and an SI2 diamond may look exactly the same. So knowing what the diamond clarity really means helps you understand the diamond's quality or more importantly, the price. The third C is cut. Now a diamond's cut, you know, its shape and facets is what makes a diamond sparkle. We often think of a diamond's cut as shape of like round or hard or oval, but what a diamond cut actually does mean is how well the diamond's facets interact with light. Three factors play into a diamond's value. First is brightness, and that's how internal and external white light is reflected from the diamond. Next is fire. That's the scattering of white light into all the colors of the rainbow. And thirdly is scintillation. That's the amount of sparkle a diamond produces and the pattern of light and dark areas caused by reflections within the diamond. The most famous shape and cut, according to the Cape Town Diamond Museum, is the round brilliant with 57 facets. Other popular cuts include the rectangular emerald, the princess cut, and the oval cut. There's a ton more brand-specific cuts, but you know what? I don't, I don't care anymore. And the last C is carat or carat weight. To put it simply, a diamond carat weight measures how much the diamond weighs. Now, I don't know a lot about carats, but I do know this. Why carats? Well, carat weight standard started with the carob seed. Early gem traders used the small uniform carob seed as counterweights in their balance scales. Carob seeds were used because it was believed that carob seeds have very little variance in their weight. Beginning in the 1570s, it was used to measure the weight of diamonds. I learned this sitting in the lobby at GIA while waiting for the gemologist in training to come out for her lunch break. So yeah, I know why it's called a carat, but here's what graduate gemologist knows about carat weight. A diamond's mass or weight is measured in those carats. Today, a carat is the same milligram weight in every corner of the world, 200 milligrams, and each carat can be divided into 100 points. This allows very precise measurements to the hundredth decimal place. A jeweler may also describe the weight of a diamond below one carat by its points value alone. For instance, a jeweler may refer to a diamond that weighs 0.25 carats as a 25 pointer. <laughs> Why would they do that? Diamond weights greater than one carat are expressed in carats and decimals. A 1.08 carat stone will be described as 1.08 carats. <laughs> Can we get any more obvious? Everything being equal, 
Diamond price increases with diamond carat weight because larger diamonds are rare and more desirable. However, two diamonds of equal carat weight can have very different values and prices depending on the other three C's. So there you go. Did I tell you anything? <laughs> oh, that's it. Well, what do we learn? We learned that Pliny the Elder thought pretty highly of diamonds. Uh, we learned that if you find diamonds on your farm, one, don't tell anyone, and two, put up a really strong fence. Sorry, De Beers brothers. And we learned that if you have a lot of money, aim for that 1.5 carat DFL round brilliant. <laughs> and if you don't have a lot of money, there's nothing wrong with a half carat GSI one carat. They'll still love you. And now I'm about to let my executive producer and graduate gemologist Listen to this episode. <laughs> oh, God. I'll be right back. All right. So you just listened to the show. Uh, did you like it? Yes, I liked it a lot. Was it factually accurate? The facts were definitely accurate. Could I now be considered a graduate gemologist? No. <laughs> but close? Um, you're very close. But the bottom line is... I liked it a lot. Very funny, good good information, accurate information. Love that you included Pliny the Elder. Always Pliny the Elder. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for doing it on Diamonds. <laughs> sure. And thanks to all of you for listening. I will talk to you next time on 20 Minutes You'll Never Get Back. Bye-bye. Hi, it's me again, Doug. I want to take up a couple more seconds of your time just to remind you, if you want to stay informed of when uh, the next podcast is posted, all you need to do is sign up at uh, on that Instagram machine. It's at uh, 20MYNGB, 20MYNGB, and that means 20 minutes you'll never get back. Uh, if you sign up there, you'll uh, always see when the next podcast is uploaded. And if you want to leave some comments, by all means, please do go to the uh, website at 20minutespodcast.com. So it's 20minutespodcast.com. And uh, you can uh, leave your comments there. It also tells you how you can be an announcer for the show. So take take a look at those two things if you'd like and stay informed. And I'll, as always, thank you very much for listening to uh, 20 Minutes. You'll never get back. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.